1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
2: Hi, I'm John McEnroe, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast.
3: Hi, my name is Grigor Dimitrov, and you're listening to Tennis Podcast.
2: Hi,
0: I'm Mats Vilander, and you are listening to The Tennis Podcast.
4: Well hello and welcome to the Tennis Podcast. We record this episode a few days before you are hearing it because we find ourselves, Catherine Whitaker and myself, inside the headquarters of British Tennis, the Lawn Tennis Association at the National Tennis Centre. Catherine, these are very nice surroundings. Lots of tennis courts, unfortunately, being splattered by rain at the moment. So you and I can't have that rematch that I've been after for such a long time.
2: You're never going to have that, David. That's all I've got on you at the moment, that that one victory over you. Because it's not going very well predictions-wise, is it?
4: No, just to bring you up to date, uh, although we still have a few days until you hear this, I'm currently, I think,
2: 14-7 th- ahead, is 8, it? Eight. That extra point is very important. 14-8 you are but you know it can all change it can all change if i if i correctly predict one match including the set score and the game score that's that's 5 points right there so you know just uh, watch your back
4: yeah that's likely uh we are here because we have a very special guest here on the tennis podcast this week it is a man who's been placed in charge of british tennis mr michael danny hello sir good morning david and catherine looking forward to being here today Oh, it's it's great to see you. You've been in position now for just over a year, started in January last year. How, how are you
3: finding it so far? Uh, it's been great actually. I think I've been here long enough that I understand uh, how to get into the building and which way to go and I have a fairly good understanding of tennis in this country but there's still a lot to learn actually. And we are here to talk about
4: a, what you have learned, and B, what your plans are for the future, because you've just revealed your
3: strategy for the next four years. We have, David. We've uh, we spent about the last four or five months actually working on a long-term strategy. This is something that every business needs, and we want to take our time. And I actually asked the board if we could start it in the summer, because I wanted the first six months to really get my knowledge base up. But it's been a very, very productive uh, uh, approach, and we feel very good about the strategy moving forward. And what are the main priorities? Well, it starts with participation and it ends with participation. So uh, as you probably know, we have a new mission, which is to get more people playing tennis more often. And unfortunately, our sport is not growing. Uh, We're seeing an ongoing decline in monthly and weekly players, and that's something that we have to work with our partners to reverse, so that the strategy is really rooted in reversing, or first of all, stemming that decline, reversing it, and getting growth and participation. And your
4: background is that you've obviously worked at other major sports teams and businesses, and you spent nine years at Tennis Canada, I imagine with a similar kind of mission statement.
3: Uh, very much so actually like you know the, the federation of tennis whether it's in great britain or canada or the U- us or australia fundamentally we're all facing the same issues as how we get our sports growing and so i think the learning that i got from tennis can be tennis canada can be applied here but the scale's bigger here and i think we've got some some deeper challenges that we've got to address in this country and what are they Well, I think fundamentally the difference between the two countries. In Canada, you had a country that really didn't have a rich history in tennis, and that country is benefiting from the success of Milos and Eugenie Bouchard right now and because you're just getting far more coverage on TV and radio and the media, and that's helping grow the sport. We're a more developed nation. We're a more mature nation, and I think we've got to go deeper in terms of making sure the, the basics are in right. So, for example, we've got to help the clubs. We've got to be a better service organization of the clubs and attract the clubs, which are the bedrock of our sport here, help them actually appeal to a younger audience. You know, one of the fundamental problems we face in this country is half the members of clubs are over 55 years of age. And that's great that we've got the older generation playing tennis, but we need to appeal to that, you know, 10 to 25 year old and the young adults and get them into the clubs. So that's one of the fundamental changes we've got to work on. How do you do it? Well, I think it's about best practices. So we believe if we've got 2,700 clubs out in the network, there are some clubs out there that are doing really good things, attracting a younger audience. What we've got to do is actually get that information and then disseminate it back to the club network. Uh, And I also think it's important that we focus on the clubs that truly want to grow not all clubs in this nation really want to grow their membership. They may be satisfied with X number of members, they can get courts. But we also know the majority of clubs have told us in research they actually want to grow that younger audience. So we need to help them through best practices. And you mentioned appealing to
4: the younger audiences. Now, I know part of the strategy that has been outlined
3: is an investment,
4: an extra investment in marketing. Mm -hmm. What is the thinking behind that?
3: Well, you know I'm a marketer at heart. I was trained in what's called package goods marketing back in the 80s and uh, I believe in the power of marketing. And the uh, the example I'll cite and and this is really a I think a criticism of most national governing bodies in tennis and outside of tennis, we tend to play in what we call the push game. It's about pushing the product out there. So in our example, we you know, how do we help train coaches? How do we get the equipment out there? How do we get the programs out there? How do we make sure the park courts are in good shape or the club, are in good shape. And all that needs to be done. But what we don't spend time on is pulling the product. And what that is is promotion and advertising. And we need to look at tennis as a product. How do we position it? How do we advertise it? So one of the strategies we have is trying to jumpstart the summer season, for example. You know, our player profile, which shouldn't surprise you, most of the participation peaks in July. That's when the weather's great and we've got the world's best tennis tournament helping us in Wimbledon. Can we actually get more of those people that play tennis in the parks in July uh, playing in May and June? Well, advertising is going to be part of it. Just like if we were an ice cream company, you'd be doing advertising before the summer. We should be doing advertising to try to change behavior and get people to say, this is why you should be playing a little earlier. Those are the type of things that marketing can do.
4: And I mentioned the weather out there just at the moment. It's it's not very nice. How does one get around that
3: fact that, you know, you can't always use these courts when it's raining? Well, I think it's something we've got to accept. Like, we realize, you know, our sport is never going to have really high participation outdoors in December, January, February. It's just not going to happen because the weather is unpredictable and it tends to be rainy. But there's our weather is really not that bad. You know, I come from Canada where there's an awful lot of snow. And I think part of it is just trying to extend that summer season. So if we peak in July, as I said, how do we get more people playing in May, June? We know they continue off into August, September, october and if we can flatten that curve out there's a ton of tennis to be played also Catherine is a great
4: example of somebody who doesn't need good weather to play tennis Do you Catherine? uh
2: no no well um I, I need a lot of things to play good tennis david uh many of them i don't have some of them i do have one of the issues i actually had you mentioned younger people not necessarily the juniors the potential future wimbledon champions i'm i'm just outside of that 10 to 25 bracket you mentioned, but just by a few years. Um, very enthusiastic tennis player. I was coached um, as a youngster, but, you know, was never going to be a, a champion. But I'm of a, an OK standard. My brother is similar, but of a slightly more OK standard. We are lucky enough and privileged enough that we have very good municipal f- tennis facilities near us in parks, um, but we don't have any other opponents. We have we have to play one another all the time. We're our, we're one another's only opponents. And I wonder. It, maybe this is a very niche question. I don't know. Or maybe there are thousands of people listening to this saying, "I have the same problem." But finding opponents for young people that have invested so much time and parents have invested so much money, we want to be able to use the the modest skills that we have in tennis to be able to to play a wider range of people. Not, Matthew, if you're listening, that I don't love playing you, but uh, that's that's my question, really. It's perhaps a bit of a selfish one, but uh, I'd be interested to know what the strategy for that is. Mm -hmm.
3: It's a fair question because, uh, you know, we we believe part of the reason our sport's declining is we're losing to sports that we call doorstep sports, you know, going out and riding a bike or jogging or running or walking or going to the gym where you don't need equipment and you, you need a bike in the case of cycling, but you also don't need a partner. And our sport needs a partner. And I think it comes down to, trying to just find, you know, I'll give an example. There's there's companies out there that do leagues and parks and they're web-based and we want to get behind some of those companies and how do we actually help set up infrastructure that's quite simple, that can be web-based, where you sign up at your local authority, you go to a website, we match you with like, like, like quality players and you then arrange your own matches and you play in box leagues. We know we can get behind these kind of companies and we think you know, in our strat plan, we actually say with it we think there's about four thousand players doing that in parks right now. We think it could be thirty or forty thousand in four years. It's about getting behind that kind of approach, which should work actually. It's about connecting people to play. Do you have any um timeline in mind for for the, the differences you want to see happening? Well, it's a four-year plan, and uh, there's a reason why it's a four-year plan, because we know not all can be done in the first year. Like, the marketing one is a prime example. We believe, if we can prove it can work, we want a national campaign by 17 or 18, but we're not going to get out there in 15 and 16 with a national campaign, because we've got to do testing. We're not going to go spend millions of pounds in advertising if we can't prove it works, so we'll, we'll do that testing in the next 24 months. So a lot of the programming is being tiered over time, and that's why, you know, when we did release the strategy, we said, look, we're not going to give any grandiose number in four years of how many people are going to be playing tennis because we've got a sport that's actually on a slide we you know you have to slow the decline you have to stop the decline then you've got to grow it and then you've got to get sustainable growth we feel comfortable if all the plans are executed with excellence and that's a big if because not everything is going to work the way we want but if that does happen we feel that we can turn the corner and be having sustainable growth by the time we leave the strategic plan
4: and i suppose the the, the view is that if you grow that base, the more chance you've got, simply by the question of numbers, to get more top class tennis players in the long
3: run. Absolutely. You know, when I took Judy Murray through the Strat Plan, you know she had a lot of comments and good comments but the one that i i really remember the most was she said look the fundamental job of a national governing body is to make sure the base is healthy so we've got to work with our partners to get our base healthy but common sense also comes through if you've got more kids playing tennis you're going to have more kids in the pool. And more should actually say, you know what, I want to become the next Andy Murray. So the base growing is important. And while we know from a high performance end, there may be things not working as well today as we had hoped across the nation. And some of it is our responsibility. Some of it isn't. But getting the base bigger is going to feed. And clearly, we want the base bigger, especially from a kid's perspective.
4: You mentioned Andy Murray. Uh, I, I believe you've sat down with him and, and given him a, a, an outline as to, as to what the plans are. What, what was his reaction?
3: It was a great meeting. It, uh, we met just before the official dinner in Glasgow at the Davis Cup, and uh, I took him through the one-page strategy. One, uh He was quite engaged, actually, and really wanted to understand why the sport is declining. And you could just see his wheels of mind working on that one. He asked an awful lot of questions. But fundamentally, he also knows this is my job and the job of the NGB to execute these things. But I was really impressed with his engagement in asking good questions around the strategy because he obviously cares about this sport. And what role does he have for you? I mean, certainly in terms
4: of interest level.
3: His role is to keep doing what he's doing, which is win on court and win on court with style. You know, we track his his interest level. We track his awareness among the general population of this country. We track how people look at him in terms of being a role model and other type of of skills in that regard. And his numbers are very, very high. And they continue to get high as he continues to win on court. Andy Murray winning on court, doing well for the sport, being in the media every week, being on TV every Saturday and Sunday is the best thing he can do for this sport because it it generates what I call water-cooler talk whether he wins or loses a final the fact that he gets to a final means monday morning people are talking about how well andy did on court and that's what's going to help drive in in an indirect way participation is there a difference in how the strategy needs
4: to be for female tennis players engaging young girls
3: I would say yes, actually. And I've had a long discussion with Judy Murriam on that. She's, you know, we were working with Judy on a new program that she came up with called Miss Hits, which is really a variation of mini tennis.
2: You sure can, David. Wherever the stories are, the rivalries emerge and the generations clash, you can watch it all with daily live coverage beginning on Monday, May the 20th. Be there when it happens by subscribing to Tennis Channel Plus to stream daily coverage of Roland Garros. Use promo code tenispod 20 for 20% off your annual subscription
3: that's targeted for young females. And it's rooted in the fact that they are different than young males. Uh, And, you know, one of the fundamental things we know is, well, we think we need to be more team-oriented with kids to begin with because kids like to play in teams and tennis can deliver a team product. It's even more important for young females. So these are some of the differences that we've got to actually... Use when we go out and build programs and do marketing? You know, one of the things, if I can expand on that question, one of the things we've learned here is that, and it's kind of common sense, but not all tennis players are the same. And so what we've done is segmentation research, where we've now got six distinct groups of tennis players that are based on differences of attitudes and behaviors, not just on how they play tennis. And so what we have to do is actually decide who we're targeting with one what product. It's no different than if you're a beer company. If you've got five different brands, how are you targeting the different beer consumers? We need to bring that same level of expertise in marketing. And so, you know, if I can go on on this one, there's three segments that we really, really believe there's great potential. And one of them is really about men under 30 who like to test their metal in the summer after they've played football. So how do we get them more partners, your question earlier, to play in parks? We also know there's a group of females under 40 that like to play in parks, and they're about partners. And that fits well with a product that we launched this year called Tennis Tuesdays, which we did research on in, in 10, 10 park courts in London. And we're going to extend it to about five different cities this year in about 100 sites. It's targeted to that female group. And the other one is, is really rooted in young families that see tennis as a great bonding exercise one of the advantages of our sport is you can play it as a family you know adults can play mini tennis that type of thing so we need to have programs that are targeted at the young families and we think our great british tennis weekend and we'll have three of them this year are a great vehicle for young families to come out and trial tennis in a fun way for free one of the
4: contentious uh, areas for your predecessors was the use of a number of very high-profile coaches. People like Brad Gilbert, Paul Anacone, Peter Lundgren were all involved with British tennis for, for a few years. And when one would come to the National Tennis Centre during that time, there were the top-ranked players in Britain on these courts every day, every day that they weren't uh, out at tournaments, being put through their paces by those uh, those high-profile names. That isn't the case
3: these days, is it? The, the, the strategy has changed. It has, actually. And we're, we're um, there's a couple different pillars to the new strategy in high performance, but one of them is a focus more on decentralization. You know, there's an interesting fact that was given to me a couple months ago where if you look at the top 200 ranked men and women in the world, they come from 60 different nations. That tells you that players are being developed in many ways, but it's not all from a centralized approach because a lot of these are small nations where you wouldn't have national training centers and that type of thing. And we also believe, because our sport is a duration match, let's be serious, a kid that starts at six or eight years of age probably isn't going to really make... A major mark in their career until they're 19 or 20, in terms of a fundamental win that's going to propel them into being a top 100 or 50 or 20 player. And therefore, we believe that we need to be focused more on decentralization. How do we help the best coaches and kids, wherever they are in this country, and go deeper in helping them in that end? And that's a fundamental change, I think, from where we've been. It doesn't mean our National Training Center isn't a viable component or a piece of the puzzle. And what we're using the National Tennis Centre here for now is what we call camps that Bob Brett are running, where we're bringing the best under 10s, 12s, 14s, 16s from across the country for five-day camps. And so we want to use this place more as a regrouping centre, and then those kids go back out to their local markets. Um, These are just a couple of the fundamental changes. You mentioned Bob Brett, and well, there is a high-profile name, a man
4: who has done it all as a tennis coach, leading the career of Boris Becker, Goran Ivanovic, Marin Cilic, to name but a few. We we had him as a guest on, on the Tennis Podcast a, a couple of years ago. It was probably about two years ago to the day, in fact, in Miami. And he told us at the time about his experiences, his philosophy, how Harry Hopman brought him up as, as a tennis coach. And Frankly, I was a, a little bit shaken by it, imagining what it would be like to be on a, a tennis court with Bob Brett. What, what is it that you brought him in for?
3: Well, you know, I, I, there's very few coaches in this world that are uh, the quality of Bob Brett. So that, you know, he's forgotten more than most probably know in terms of the challenges he's faced in helping to develop some of the world's best talent. So I think we're honoured to have him working at the LTA. But we really want him here to make a difference around this country. It's not just about working with one player. He's done that in the past, and he's done it really, really well. What Bob wants to do is help build the next generation of British players. And that's why when we brought him in for his 60-day review of high-performance tennis in this country, the miles he put on his car, going around to all the different high-performance centres, a lot of clubs, seeing what's out there, is what we want Bob doing. We want him showing up, spending time working with coaches and kids. And that may be a fundamental challenge from kind of the other high-profile coaches we, we hired. They were directed more to work with just certain levels of talent. And what we want with Bob is him impacting more in this country and helping to build a legacy of success. So one of the things we have Bob doing, and I don't know the number, but I think there's like 15 or 20 coaches, largely young coaches, that he's mentoring. That's an important legacy that we need in this country because we need to help get the coaches that we think have potential to another level. And that's not arrogance from our end. But if you can have a Bob Brett spend time with some young coaches and, you know, in terms of working with them on on court, that's an immense learning experience. So we've got to use Bob to benefit a wider group of kids and a wider group of coaches in this country.
4: I described it as trying to clone Bob Brett and just drop him in, in different parts of the country
3: so that you have effectively changing the culture. Very much so. And it's not easy because he's an independent coach. So it's not like he comes with a written Bible on how to do it. A lot of it's in his head. And that's why we want to get him out there as often as possible working with coaches and kids, because it's going to be what they see on court and how he talks about things and how they're going to learn versus what's written in a piece of paper. I know Bob Brett a little bit, Catherine. So,
4: you know, if you want me to just um, have a word with him, see if you can improve your game for our next meeting.
2: If you can improve my predictions for me, that would, be, uh, that would be most welcome. It's you that needs the improvement in any game, David. I re- don't don't make me remind you of the score at the Albert Hall.
4: Actually, Bob Brett has seen my backhand, Michael. It was one of the greatest moments of my uh, 41 years on the planet so far when Bob Brett, when I was working for the ATP uh, and I actually managed to blag my way onto the Monte Carlo Country Club court and he walked in the distance and he just sort of said, not bad. Absolutely,
3: but I will tell you, you know, he his work ethic is second to none, and I think that's been shocking for some people in this country. But I think what it's saying is, this is what it takes: this non, you know, uncompromising approach to high performance. This is a brutal world. The sport to get to Andy's level, to get to Rafa's level, is an inhumane approach. It really is, actually, and it takes this kind of effort. And Bob brings it, and he's looking for it in the kids, and he's looking for it in the coaches. So basically, there's, it's a no compromise approach, generally
4: speaking. And, and I imagine that is going to come, I mean, I, I'm a parent, and my my little daughter is interested in picking up a tennis racket. She's only five years of old age, but she hits the ball and she loves it. I, as a parent, I would probably have second thoughts in some regards as to whether I'd want to put her through that. But that's what's required, isn't it?
3: Yeah, it's very difficult. But remember too, a, a, a player and a parent behind them that wants to see if they can get the professional ranks, even if they don't, there's a lot of fringe benefits that come the way. Like tennis teaches a lot of great values and behaviors, the discipline, the intensity, the focus that's required. All those things are life skills that are going to help those kids if they decide not to go professionally. We also know they can get college education, free in certain parts of the world. Here in Britain, they can get a great education through tennis as well. So those are other benefits that come through it. And if you become a great tennis player, but maybe not make it as a pro, you're probably going to use your game to help whatever you end up doing to make a living down the road. But truly, it is a very difficult process. It's a very difficult approach to get there, and it takes this kind of unrelentless commitment. And uh, not everybody has it, and a lot of people think they have it, but it's really difficult. And we're going to be looking for those kids that aren't looking for excuses. They're basically saying, I got to get up every morning and I got to work really hard at this. And I may have to sacrifice certain things to get there, but that's the discipline. I'm sure Andy Murray applied and Rafa and Roger applied all along the way. Early days, but has Bob seen anybody out there like that so far? oh, he's seen a lot of good talent around the country, but he doesn't want to bring attention to these kids. It's more about how do we involve them in camps and things like that. And part of the reason is we don't want to bestow certain kind of expectations on young kids because it may lead to the wrong behavior. We think part of the problem that we've had in this country is that kids at a very young age are actually recognized for their future potential. And that may take them, that may pull them off the switch a little bit, that they think they're there. And quite Quite frankly, someone who's the under-12 national champion or under-14 national champion it's a great reward that they've achieved. That, but in the world of global tennis, it's not really proved anything yet. Um, we want them to have those achievements, but we want to also keep them hungry. It's about them coming back and saying, you know, Bob used to say to me all the time, "Well, your players are sleeping; someone's training," and that's what's going on. And they've got to have that kind of mindset.
4: Just like to finish, uh, Michael, by referencing the incredible scenes we had recently at the Davis Cup in Glasgow, it was, uh, it was really something and you were there, I saw you in the crowd and I, I actually read a, an article with uh, Milos Raonic who, who warned us that we were going to hear your voice at Davis Cup ties, he said you, uh, you, you're not backwards and coming forwards in terms of giving support, what was that experience like?
3: Well, I've been to a lot of Davis Cup ties through my 10 years, and that was by far the most exciting one. Um, it, for me, Davis Cup and Fed Cup, at this level, there is no better tennis because it removes the two words I dislike the most in our sport, which is quiet, please – I really dislike the fact that we're telling our fans to be quiet, but it's part of the history of the game, and we have to respect that. But in Davis Cup, well, it's got to be quiet during the serves, it doesn't have to be quiet the rest of the time. And I think it's the best of both, that the players get energized by it because the fans are energized by it. And, you know, I was lucky enough to be there. And what James Ward did on Friday night in coming back from 0-2 to take down John Isner, who's a top-20 player, was remarkable. And I was lucky enough to see James Ward in the elevator the next day. And I, I went up to James and I said, this is why you play tennis, is He said, absolutely, Michael. It doesn't get any better than this. And uh, that's why we're so looking forward to the next tie in July against France, because the guys are really bonded. They know they've got a chance. And it's very, very special. We've heard this through the grapevine that it's very special for individual players that compete every day on their individual background or b- backing in that regard. To play as a team and to play for their country and play for their nation is very, very special because it's so unique for them that they don't do it very often. Exciting times ahead. Catherine, a gr-
4: maybe a grass court Davis Cup tie next. That's what uh, Andy Murray said he'd like to have, uh, Michael.
3: That'd be good, wouldn't it? It would actually, you know, there's no doubt he showed his preference. We're working a lot of different uh, options on this one at this point in time. No announcements will be made shortly, but we're trying to deliver a really good option that puts our team in the best position to win. And we clearly also want to make sure we've got a great fan experience because we know the fans can make a difference, especially in a home tie. Well, I'm sure that's, that's the case.
2: It shows the level of confidence I think, among the team that 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 Andy was so um forthright with saying that he wanted the tie to be on grass because the French team are no slouches on grass. you could argue that that grass would probably be their preferred surface as well, so I think it's a real marker of of the the confidence and the um the atmosphere there is in that team that they obviously feel like you know you you come to us and we'll take you on on our surface and we'll win. I
3: think you're right. It's all about confidence, and they they they've now beaten the Americans two years in a row, and they're confident as a team. And there's a great bond that Leon has built there with with the cap as a captain, and Andy leads by example. And uh, we can't wait till July. We can't either. On the
4: tennis podcast, Michael, been an absolute pleasure to have you with us. Thanks very much. We'll speak to you soon.